Hey, good morning, everybody. Man, it's so good to be with you today, and thank you so much for letting me be a part of a really, really special time of worship together. Hey, we're going to go to Romans chapter 8 in a moment, but I just want to take a minute to uh, just make a comment or two about what's going on in Israel today. So if you would turn your Bible to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. You can find the book of Zechariah by going to like your New Testament, the book of Matthew, turning backwards to the left, about two books. And uh, so well, the uh, second to the last book of Bible prophecy written in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 12. And some of you may have heard this passage before, but <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. So the God who does and who is everything. is what he's trying to say there. He declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Judah being the area immediately surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And on that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. And all who try to move it will injure themselves. And on that day, I will strike every house with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. And then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. And so I know there's a lot going on right now, and we, uh, we certainly have reason to be concerned, to be prayerful, to be watchful, absolutely. But what you see over and over and over again, as you read the words of God, as he's declared through his prophets, is that uh, the God who made everything, the God who formed everything, that he will defend his people there in that land. And so I, I, I know that you know, we have a lot of concern, and absolutely we should. And I'm, I've, I don't know about you, I've been glued to the TV. And it is heartbreaking, all the things that are going on. But we just have to know and understand that God is at work in these things and that God has a purpose for these things. And that the, uh, this era of human history is kind of winding down. I, I really do believe that this era of human history is kind of coming to an end. And I don't know, you know, there again, you know, Peter says, you know, a thousand days or a thousand uh, years or as a day to the Lord. And, and so we don't really know how long this is going to be, but it sure does feel that way. And, uh, but it, well, we have to have confidence knowing that the Lord is going to intervene. The Lord is going to intervene and care for his people. And so uh, I know Michael has already prayed over Israel and I appreciate that very much. We really appreciate that. But continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, honestly. Really incredible what's going on right now. So Romans chapter 8. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning and uh, continuing our study of Romans. <clears throat> There's a man named Ed Sheeran. I don't expect everybody here to know him, but he's one of the biggest global pop stars of the 21st century. His concerts are just, are just massive. He fills stadiums everywhere he goes, and he sings some millions of people every year. Uh, you know, he's winning millions, uh, dozens of awards every year, hanging out with Taylor Swift, you know, people like that. And uh, on Disney Plus, they've just done a new four-part kind of a docu-series. It's called The Sum of It All. 
And it's very revealing because this global pop star who seems to have it all, his life is not what most people would think. Over the course of a few months as they're following him around, he shares with the uh, documentary team how his best friend died of a cardiac arrest. He's only in his 30s and he died of a heart attack. And then Ed's wife, they were really excited that they found out they were pregnant, they were going to have a baby. But then she was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor that threatened the life of his wife and his baby both. And he kind of opens up, you know, he kind of opens up his chest there in this documentary. And he said there was a time that grief and loss kind of took over his entire life. And he was just plagued with fear and depression and anxiety. And he says in the documentary that he even found himself at times being suicidal. It's incredible to think someone with so much wealth and fame and and influence would even think that the pains and the griefs of life might be enough for him to say, I'm done with this. I'm going to end it all. And what it reminds us of is what the Bible tells us over and over again. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, famous or unknown. If you, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You're, we all suffer grief and, and pain and loss. And, it, and when, those, when that pain and loss comes into our lives, <clears throat> we can handle it for a while. But it's kind of like the old faithful guys are at Yellowstone. You know, the pressure is always building. And when the, when the pain that we feel in life continues to build and the pressure begins to build, so does the pressure on our soul. And the questions that we're able to kind of push down and kind of keep submerged for a while, they, they eventually, they're, just, they're forced to the surface when life hurts us really, really badly. And we have just one question we all want answered. And that question is this, why? Why? Why do children get murdered by terrorists? Why do children get shot at school? Why do people get shot at church? Why do good people get cancer? We just had a funeral service in here this past uh, Thursday for my next door neighbor who died of cancer. You know, really, really dear woman. And her her mother-in-law sat right there where Nisa is sitting. And she had a stroke about six weeks ago. And she lost the use of the right side of her body. And so in the last six weeks, she's had a stroke and, and, you know, she's in a nursing home and now she's lost her daughter-in-law. And she sat there in that chair and she cried for a solid hour. I've never seen anybody cry for a full hour. Her name is Cricket. You might pray for Cricket Gibbs. And man, she did. She really did. Why does God allow babies to be born with heart defects? You know, my son and daughter-in-law are here this morning. Some of their very best friends, they just had a baby, but the baby had to go under, undergo a major heart surgery and there, just this past week. And the surgery was successful, but it's not enough. They have to have a heart donor. And the thing they're wrestling with right now is, you know, somebody else is going to have to go through a lot of grief so that we can have a lot of joy. Really hard. Some people have this question. Why can't I have the same kinds of relationships that other people have? Why did I have to go through the divorce? How come I've never been able to get married? And sometimes it's just, why is this happening to me? Like, why am I being singled out for this? C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, he said this, the problem of pain is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. I would imagine there are some of you here today who can identify with that. I'm certain some of you spent this past week crying, hurting, grieving, confused. And perhaps in the midst of that, 
you're battling some significant doubts about God. Or you may have even turned against God. Your life feels like a journey down a long, dark road. And you just can't see the light at the end. And the suffering you feel just doesn't seem to make sense. And so that's the title we have today, The Significance of Our Suffering. And so before we dive into this, I'd like to have a word of prayer for us. Lord, I just ask that today that um, for all the people here who are hurting and confused and grieving and in pain, Lord, I just pray that they would find an extra measure of comfort in your holy word today. We thank you, Father, that your words comfort Israel. They comfort our hearts. And I just pray, Father, that for that person here today for whom uh, the pain or the loss is so acute today, Lord, that they would just know the presence of your Spirit, Lord, in, in the reading of your Word. I pray, Father, that your Word would find a resting place in their heart today where it has never been before. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to read in Romans chapter 8. If you, We're not going to read the entire chapter, but if you read the first part of the chapter, uh, what you would notice is that uh, you're told that when a person asks Jesus Christ to be their Savior, you admit, Lord, I, I'm lost without you. I desperately need you. I'm asking you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me to be my Savior. When you do that, the Bible says three things happen simultaneously. It's incredible. First of all, this thing called justification. That's where the charges are dropped. You're declared not guilty of all your sins. As, as amazing as that is, that Jesus took all your uh, sins to the cross with him. Then regeneration means that God awakens the spirit within you and you're changed within. Your, your soul has been comatose and now it, suddenly it comes out of the coma because Jesus has said, rise again. And then there's adoption. And this is kind of where we are today. <clears throat> God makes a legal declaration in the heavens that it changes your identity and he pulls you near and says, you are my child. And so we see in John chapter one, he gave the right and the power to become children of God to those who received him, those who put their trust in his name. It's the first time, by the way, in the book of Romans that you and I are called the children of God. And now what's going to begin to happen is for the next you know, two or three chapters, it's going to get poured on really thick and really heavy, you know, that you are a child, one of God's children. And so this gives us freedom and joy and, and hope for the future. In fact, you see that word adoption, it's a powerful word. In the original language, in the Greek, it's a compound word. It means to place a son or to give the place of a son to someone that it doesn't belong to. And in Roman law, <clears throat> we talked about this briefly last week, a father could actually disown his biological children. Like, I don't want you around anymore. And he could actually deny them their inheritance. But it's remarkable by law, if the same man adopted a son, he actually had a more secure position than the son who was born by birth. If a man adopted a child legally, he could never disown his adopted son or take his inheritance away. And that's why you see there in verse 16 when Paul says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit or agrees with the Spirit within us that we are God's children. <clears throat> what happens here is that God's Spirit adds his voice to our own realization and conviction that we actually are the children of God. And we ask Jesus to become our Savior, we become something altogether different from what we had been before. We take on a new identity. And with that new identity, there become new rights, new responsibilities, but also, this is very important, new responses to life. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said, you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to become the new self, to become like Christ. And, and as we're talking about this, I want you to be thinking about this in the back of your mind that if God adopts you into his family, he's going to adapt you to that family, all right? Hebrews chapter 12, those whom God loves, he disciplines, all right? And so there are five privileges of being adopted by God. We talked about three last week. Number one, it grants you an access to authentic spirituality. It gives you security in your relationship to God, eternal security. And then it awakens an affection for God in your soul. But number four today, adoption gives significance to your suffering. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, Paul is using Roman adoption law as a teaching illustration. And when a Roman man would adopt a child, the adoption and the writing of his last will and testament would happen kind of at the same time. And Paul's meaning here is that it's impossible to be a child of God without being an heir of God. And it's one of the greatest titles for people who know Christ as their Savior, heirs of the kingdom. Isn't that cool? That's a nice ring to it. I really like it a lot. James chapter 2, verse 5. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? And hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised? You see, the adoption was irrevocable. The one being adopted would become a son and an heir in one fell swoop, legally speaking. And so after adopting his heir, the father would not, could not subsequently take away any of his inheritance. And God cannot disown or disinherit anybody that he calls his own. Galatians chapter 3, look up on the screen. You are all children of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. Simply, it's your faith. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. You belong to Christ. You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And all of God's promises to Abraham, he says, belong to you. Man, we should just let that soak in for a minute. But, you know, we're here in America where we are the land of the free, the home of the brave, you know, life and liberty for all. Can you imagine reading those words if you were living in Roman society and you were a woman? You had no rights. You had no status at all. But he says there's neither male nor female in God's eyes. And then he says, slave nor free. Half of the people in Roman society were slaves. They had no rights. They had no status, just like the women. And so just imagine if you're a slave reading those words. And then the anti-Semitism, it's, 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 it's omnipresent in our world. It's always been there. It was definitely present in the Roman society. In fact, when you read about Aquila and Priscilla a little bit later in 1 Corinthians, they were in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome. The Roman emperor just said, I want all the Jews out of Rome. And they all had to leave. All right, they all had to you know, vacate uh, Rome. So the Jews have always been treated this way. Can you imagine if you were a Jew saying there's neither Jew nor Gentile? 
You could put the word Italian there. There's neither Jew nor Italian because it was the people of Italy who were prized and you know, cared for and precious in the eyes of Rome. That's what he's saying there. And you're co-heirs with Christ. Those who know Christ as their Savior share equally in all that Christ inherits. In the Roman adoption law, every child in the family, biological and adopted, if they weren't disowned or disinherited, received an equal share of the inheritance. And so Galatians chapter 4, Paul wrote this, God has, God has sent his son that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, or Dear Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. But I want you to notice a very powerful word that Paul uses in verse 17. He says, you're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if, if indeed we share in his sufferings. If we want a great inheritance, we don't merely sit and suffer along with everybody else. This world is filled with trouble. Jesus said it would be. But if we choose as an act of our will Suffering that has significance. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Then, Paul says, that is a game changer right there. Jesus said in John chapter 15, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Oh, that's a tough verse of Scripture, isn't it? That is hard to hear. I don't know if I've ever been hated, but I've experienced hatred a few times. And the times that I've experienced hatred is when I was really standing up for my true convictions as a child of God. And so, yes, this world is hard. We suffer in it. But the message of the gospel is this. Choose more of it. Don't settle for a quiet little life where the primary purpose of your life is pain avoidance. When God embraces you as his child, you embrace him as your father and you do your Father's perfect will. Wherever He tells you to go, whatever He asks you to do, whatever the price may be, you say, yes, Father, I will. That's what He's talking about here. Give more of yourself. Sacrifice more of yourself. Go where others fear. Say what others won't. Be unreasonable. Be unpredictable. And if you do, the implications for your life, both here and now and then and there, are just beyond imagination. You have more to gain from serving Christ, from giving to Christ, than you could ever imagine. Will it be hard? Will it be painful? Will it be sacrificing? Yes. Yes, it will. But in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Blessed and spiritually alive with joy are you when people hate you and exclude you from their fellowship and insult you and scorn your name because of your association with the Son of Man. He says, Rejoice on that day. And leap for joy, for your reward in heaven is great. I was talking with my home group last week. We talked about this passage and suffering for Christ. And I was relaying to them, you know, uh, I feel very blessed. All four of my children have a really strong walk with the Lord. You know, all the years that they were in school here in Border. And, and uh, I remember one time in particular, though, with one of my daughters, uh, sitting at home on a Friday night, 
And I knew that she wasn't out with all the friends and stuff like that just because of just, you know, they just didn't want her around on a Friday night, you know, with the things that they were doing. And I remember walking past her door, you know, I just wanted so bad just to knock on the door and say, hey, honey, let's all load up in the car and go to Sonic, get some ice cream, you know? That's what every teenager wants to do on a Friday night is hang out with their parents at Sonic, you know? I'm thinking like it's like happy days, you know? <laughs> like, gee, dad, that'd be swell, you know? Maybe my classmates will be there too. That would be fun. But look what he says. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. I remember standing outside her door. I just laid my hands on her door. And I said, Lord, I know that she's suffering tonight because she loves your glory. And I just said, Lord, I just pray for your consolation and for your peace for my precious daughter right now tonight. And yeah, there are some sufferings that are involved. I think sometimes in the Christian life, we assume that suffering is something like we see happening in Israel where you know, people are being butchered and killed and things like that. Now there's a spectrum. And notice Jesus puts on the spectrum when people exclude you from their fellowship, when they insult you, when they scorn your name. Why? Yeah, he's, he thinks he's better than everybody else. Or, yeah, she's Miss Perfect. Yeah, that's suffering. That's suffering. And in this short sentence, Paul reveals why you and I can rejoice even when the road is dark. Because when we suffer on this earth, it's extraordinarily significant. You see, everything that you and I do today matters forever. And there's a direct correlation between something you do for Jesus on earth and what Jesus will do for you in heaven. I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and there's a couple I was reading about. They devote every Thursday night, they call it neighbor night. And she makes a big pot of soup or stew and cornbread, and they just invite the neighbors over. Not the people from church, but the physical neighbors, the people who live next door, across the street, etc. And they know it's neighbor night, and they all come over. They're not all believers. She says, sometimes it's messy, it's uncomfortable. We have conversations, we talk about the gospel. We talk about life. We talk about our kids. We talk about everything. And she said the rewards have been incredible. But it gets even better than that because Jesus promises that when you make sacrifices like that, that you get a share of his glory, a co-heir with Christ. Look again up on the screen, Luke chapter 14. Jesus said to a Pharisee, when you give a luncheon or a dinner party, don't invite your friends or your wealthy neighbors for they're going to invite you back and then you'll be fully repaid. But when you give a party, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind. And that way lies real happiness. They have no means of repaying you, but you will be repaid when good men are rewarded at the resurrection. We can be sure of two things when we fearlessly and selflessly do God's will in this broken world. That there will be a cost in this life and there will be a massively disproportional reward in the next. Look at verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, everybody who's left a house, a brother, a sister, a field, or children because of my name is going to receive 100 times as much in eternity along with their eternal life. You know, Jesus is not commanding you and I to just embark on this journey into misery in the name of Christ. 
He is saying there are actions you can take on earth that are so significant that they echo into eternity. And the compensation for these actions that we take and sometimes the pain that we feel in life, we know they're coming, but the compensation is so out of proportion with what we feel now that we are filled with joy. In Acts chapter 5, it says that the apostles were taken in and flogged for, you know, speaking the name of Jesus. And when they left, the Bible says they weren't discouraged at all. It says they were filled with joy over being considered worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. Oh, that verse has always challenged me so much. You know, John telling Peter like, man, the cuts on your back are deep. I know, isn't it great? Man, they got me good, (laughs) you know, but we did it for Jesus. It's an aspect of the Christian life we don't advertise very well. We are to be Christ to the world. And we are entrusted with the privilege of suffering and sacrificing for humanity, just like our big brother Jesus did. And we rejoice in suffering because the glory that is coming is incomparable in its intensity. It's disproportionately greater than our present suffering. And we're going to look back on all of our earthly suffering in those days that stretch on and on and on and on into eternity. And we will say, it was worth it all. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said this, these little troubles which are so transitory are winning for us a permanent and glorious reward out of all proportion to our pain. I look around the room, and I know a lot of you have been through so much this past year, past two years. And I'm sorry. I know some of you have been crying this week. and I know some of you have been in a lot of pain this week. We all have wounds and scars, and some of you have uh, wounds and scars much deeper than mine. And I don't mean to make light of them or diminish them in any way. Because, you know, our suffering, it does bring a kind of pain and a grief that can seem almost unendurable. But we can be sure that the suffering that we experience now does not compare with what awaits. I just want to ask you to think for a moment, if you could take all of your suffering and all of your pain and somehow, you know, and let's say God blesses you with 80 years on this earth. And all of the suffering and all of the pain, I think about little Cricket sitting here in that chair this last Thursday at that funeral, crying for a solid hour. All of her suffering, all of her pain, if it could be encapsulated in one little pebble. What Paul is trying to tell us over and over again, what God is trying to tell us is that it's like a pebble in the pail compared to the glory that awaits you and me. It truly is. That's the message. I want you to see this from C.S. Lewis. After we die in Christ, he says the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. We are to shine as the sun. We don't want merely to see beauty, though God knows that's bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly even put into words. To be united with the beauty, to to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. See, this is why this world is not our home, because there is a beauty, there is a glory that's out there. And like he's saying, we have this longing in our hearts, not only to see it, but to become part of it. 
And that's why Paul says the glory to be revealed in us. In us. I love that. I love that so much. And so one more thing I want to talk about with adoption is this. Adoption is going to grant the privilege of an unshakable faith in your future. An unshakable faith in your future. You know, there's so many people out there right now who are trying to make everything they possibly can from this life and this world, not realizing that this world is unspeakably broken. A few years ago, actually it's quite a long time ago, I was younger, I was a lot more naive. <clears throat> and I think I might have shared this before, I'm not sure, but uh, I was watching a nature documentary and uh, it was, you know, uh, summer, the heat of summer in Africa, and this herd of gazelles found this you know, little dry uh, pond of water in this dried up riverbed. And they wanted a drink so badly, but this, this little pond was full of crocodiles. And so this herd of gazelles you know, goes up there and they would get close to the water. And when they get close to the water, man, the crocodiles would come up to get the gazelles. And so the gazelles would run back, you know, and no one could get a drink. Well, this one gazelle kind of pushes his way from the back of the herd to the front. Let's call him Gary, Gary the gazelle, right? And uh, he has no clue what's going on. And so he puts his snout in the water. And as soon as he got his snout in the water, this crocodile rushes in, grabs Gary the gazelle by the leg and starts dragging him to the water. And I remember watching this thinking to myself, man, what are they going to do? You know, like I can just see these gazelles going up to that crocodile, like let him go, you know? <laughs> you know, trying to pummel him with their hooves, you know, let him go, you beast, you know, or something like that. No, what happened was as soon as the crocodile drug Gary into the water, they went and got a drink. <laughs> I mean, they ran up there. I can see like, hey, kids, come on. The crocodile's eating Gary. Come get some water, you know? It was really sad. And I think the scene made such an impression on me because it kind of forced me to kind of rethink some things, you know, about the world that I live in. And it kind of just impressed upon me that day. I just remember kind of having a moment with the Lord thinking, this world is truly brutal and unforgiving. And so many people experience this. Look at verse 19. Paul says, The creation itself waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is getting really philosophical here. He's saying, why is there something with wrong with everything? Why is something so wrong with everyone? Why do terrorists go on suicide missions? Why do gunmen go into schools? Why do people turn guns on themselves? Look at that word groan or groaning. You see it two times. This is the only time that word ever appears in your Bible. And it means crying out in unison, like almost like groaning in harmony. Imagine a battlefield in ancient times when you fought with swords and spears. 
Most of the men did not die from their wounds immediately. Most of them died very, very slowly. And if you walked onto the battlefield after, after the Roman army had gone through, hundreds of men laying out on the battlefield, and they would kind of walk around, look around, say, who's going to make it and who's not? And the ones they didn't believe that they could help, they just left them behind. And just imagine the chorus of groaning rising from that battlefield. That's where this word comes from. Everybody. And Paul says, everything crying out in pain. Paul is saying that creation was was subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, God did this. The creation fell into ruin when mankind did. The fall of man sealed the fate of the world. Not only did our race fall into bondage to sin and death, but now the entire physical universe has fallen as well in incredible pain. I just really want to challenge you sometimes, like slowly and thoughtfully read the first eight chapters of Genesis and notice how creation has suffered. There was Eden, there was beauty and glory, perfection and purity, and everything fell. And later on, there's these Nephilim and these wicked giants running through the land and And then there's this massive flood, and then everything has changed. The earth underwent titanic changes, geologically, atmospherically, and biologically. Y'all know, a lot of you read your Bible, that there was a time when men would live to be 900 years old. And now if a man lives to be 90, we're going, wow, that's a good run. You know? So different. The planet changed. The weather changed. We see a rainbow, oh, that's so pretty. No, that's a scar. A rainbow is a scar on our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is only a slight shadow of what it used to be, which is why it refracts the sun rays sometimes after a thunderstorm the way it does. Animals changed. Mankind changed. All for the worse. And why does the planet groan? Paul says it's in bondage to decay. This is what scientists call the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Man chose everything, sin over God. Now everything is running down. It's losing energy, losing vitality, losing life. You say, it feels like the world is unraveling. It is. It is. It's been subjected to frustration and decay. And by the way, it's not just the world that we live in. It's us too. James chapter 4. What is the nature of your life? You're really just a wisp of vapor, a puff of smoke, a mist that is visible for a little while and then disappears into thin air. Like, Les, that's a bummer. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. And we, are, we would do ourselves well to just accept the truth and the reality of who we are, where we are, and what's happening all around us. But he said, When the children of God are revealed, when that last will and testament is opened, the scroll is opened, all of nature will become all that God intended and nothing like it has even entered our imagination at any time. The glory is incomparable. The intensity is unknowable. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived. This is what God has prepared for those who love Him. 
John made a great observation in my office. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's an epic, breathtaking promise in this passage. Look at the end of verse 17. We will share his glory. We will share his glory. I don't know where you may be today. I don't know what may be going on in your life today. I don't know what you might be struggling with today. But if your heart is breaking today, your heart is broken, I just want to encourage you with all my heart to grab onto that promise. I will share His glory. I will share His glory. My time on this earth is short, but the day will come that I will see the glory of Christ and I will be the glory of Christ and that this pain and suffering that I have endured will be like a, pale, a, pe- a pebble in a pail in comparison. Let's conclude with this today. If you would turn to the last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21. I think this would be a great way for us to end today. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. John says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. No more oceans. Why not? Because the oceans are not supposed to be there. They're a remnant of the fall of man. I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Oh, how our heart yearns within us. Hmm. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. What's done? Sin and rebellion, frustration, decay. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for these incredible pictures. Not just the promises, but Lord, just the pictures. And I just pray, Father, for the person here today who's struggling, Lord, who's, uh, who's uh, just losing ground emotionally, mentally, spiritually. I just pray, Father, that you be the lifter of their head today. And Lord, that they might find uh, peace in your presence today peace in your promises, but also, Lord, peace in the picture of their future in Christ. And I just pray, Father, there might be anyone here today who has never asked you to be their Savior, who has never asked to join your holy family, Lord, that today might be that day that you would put it in their heart, Lord, to ask you to be their father, that they might be your son or daughter. But Lord, especially our hearts are today with those who are suffering, who experience suffering, and we just pray, Lord, that you would move quickly in their hearts and their minds, Father. Lord, just to bring them a sense of how much you love them and all that you've prepared for them. 
even though it's beyond imagining. Lord, just give them a glimpse of all you've prepared. I ask this in Jesus' name today.